North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear missiles could very soon threaten our homeland. If you were listening to the State of the Union this week, you may have heard, under the bit about North Korea, a drumbeat to war. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. This week, we look back at another moment in our history of nuclear fears, immortalized in the movie The Day After. Roger, understand. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time, ICBMs. And then we are deploying them as well. And so everyone located near these missile silos is watching them come out of the ground. And to me, in some ways, it's the most haunting images in the film are seeing these missiles going up into the air and people looking at them. And the playwright ponders how we might remember a Simpsons episode in the months, years, and decades after a nuclear incident. All coming up after this. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Friday, as we were finishing this hour, deadline bearing down, the House Intelligence Committee released the much-anticipated, I could say infamous, memo by Chairman Devin Nunes, who had to recuse himself from his committee's Russia investigation because of improper contacts with the White House right from the start. Anyway, if you listen to the show, you probably know the news, and you already know the broad outlines of the Republican case, which I'll put in the form of a question. If, that is if, and it's hotly disputed, the Steele dossier written by that British spy was the sole piece of evidence used to obtain a warrant from the secret FISA court to surveil Trump advisor Carter Page. Does that expose an FBI bias against Trump that invalidates the entire Russia investigation? In other words... Their central point is that this is fruit from a poison tree, essentially that because this uh, dossier was prepared by political operatives, by somebody who was being paid by a political organization, DNC and Hillary Clinton, that it should never have been used, that it should never have been granted. Big news. And yet, just another iteration of the overarching message of the Trump administration. Question the integrity of the questioners. Disable the engines of accountability, the FBI, the courts, and the media, because they do not serve America. The FBI itself cautioned against the memo's release, either because it's afraid its conspiracy has been exposed or because the memo is a tissue of half-truths risking exposure of intelligence secrets for naked partisan purposes. The FBI issuing a rare public warning expressing grave concerns about material omissions of fact that fundamentally impact the memo's accuracy. And yet, despite the warning, on Monday, the Republican-led House Intelligence Committee voted to release the Nunes memo, employing a never-before-used provision known as Rule X, that allows the committee to selectively disclose classified information, quote, after a determination by the select committee that the public interest would be served by such a disclosure. The selective disclosure does not include any of the underlying information that went into the memo, nor does it include the Democratic counter-memo. House Speaker Paul Ryan says it will once it's cleared by intelligence agencies and once the Nunes memo lands without a substantive challenge. Overall, not exactly a win for transparency. Stephen Aftergood is the director of the Federation of American Scientists Project on Government Secrecy. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thank you. The provision that Nunes is employing here has actually existed for some while but has never been used before. How can it be that a congressional committee can release classified material? Well, it can be because they say they can. You know, this is a provision that originated in the conflicts uh, during the 1970s over congressional access to classified information that led to the creation of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. And as part of their founding rules, each committee said that they reserve the right under certain circumstances to disclose classified information if they believe it is in the public interest. Reserved but never till now invoked. 
even though there were a couple of times in recent history when there seemed to be good cause to do that. I'm thinking about the torture report and also the story of alleged Saudi involvement in 9-11. That's right. There were at least a couple of episodes where members of Congress went up to the line and said, we're thinking about this. And I think that even that suggestion that they might invoke this provision may have had an effect in the sense that it conveyed to executive branch agencies that Congress was serious and that they had better declassify this material so as to dissuade Congress from releasing it on its own. You know, just about everybody you talk to, including intelligence agency leaders, will admit that there is a system-wide problem of overclassification, that too much material is unnecessarily restricted. And so here Congress is sitting on this powerful tool that they could use to change the equation, and they've never used it. They've walked up to the line and yet never crossed it. Why, do you suppose? I think the concern is twofold. One is there has been some uncertainty in the minds of Congress about whether they are accurately assessing the national security risk involved in disclosure. They don't really want the responsibility of making a mistake. And the other concern is that if they nevertheless went ahead and released material on their own initiative, they might jeopardize the committee on which the oversight process depends. That is, they require the cooperation, if not the goodwill, of the executive branch in order to do their oversight function. And if they suddenly said, you know what, we're going to break your rules and do what we think we should do, that kind of cooperation would be jeopardized in the future. What are we to make of the House Committee's efforts here? Is it a blow against overclassification or is it something different altogether? What's really interesting here is that Chairman Nunes has sort of done a bit of jujitsu on all of us. He's basically said, I am for transparency. I am the one who is agitating for greater disclosure. And if those hardliners in the executive branch won't release this memo I've written, then uh, by Jove, we're going to do it ourselves. So he has sort of flipped the script in a way that makes him and his committee the heroes of disclosure. But that only is true if you look at it on the surface and just for a second. If you scratch below a little bit, you see that he is also in the business of suppressing information, specifically the critical views that were articulated by his Democratic colleagues. And he is also not proposing to release the underlying records that are the basis for the memo, but only his interpretation of what they say. So as an act of transparency, it is a very minimal gesture that is loaded with lots of unwelcome baggage. What does it portend for the future and the conduct of future intelligence committees as we get into an ever more partisan and hostile environment on Capitol Hill. Yeah. I think part of it depends on how the rest of Congress responds to this episode. I think we're looking for leadership, especially from House and Senate Republicans, who could say, wait a minute, this is not what we call intelligence oversight. And this is not the direction for the future. If they remain silent, if they say, well, this is business as usual, then it will become business as usual. This will become the new norm, and we will have lost something valuable. Do you have this weird sense of being you know, shot with your own gun here? Because you have been agitating for transparency forever for all of the right reasons about the relationship between the government and the electorate. And here comes some hyper-transparency, perhaps for the worst reasons at perhaps the worst time. You know, even those of us who are transparency advocates 
are realizing that we have to be more sophisticated about what we believe and what we advocate. That means that not all disclosure is good, not all secrecy is bad. You know, you can't be dogmatic about this. You need to take circumstances into account. It's not only secrecy that can be used to manipulate the public record. Disclosure can also be used to alter people's perceptions in a misleading way, especially when the disclosure is selective. Steve, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Stephen Aftergood is the director of the Federation of American Scientists Project on Government Secrecy, where he writes the blog Secrecy News. Coming up, want to know when the lights go out on humanity for good? Check out the doomsday clock. We just moved 30 seconds closer to midnight. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, in President Trump's first State of the Union, some thought they heard the ominous throb of a drumbeat to war with North Korea. We need only look at the depraved character of the North Korean regime to understand the nature of the nuclear threat it could pose to America and to our allies. And it's not just the president's rhetoric. Before the address, he mused to reporters that it was really tough to unify the people without some kind of major event. And he wished it was otherwise because, quote, that major event is usually not a good thing. That same day, we learned that Victor Cha, director of Asian affairs in the National Security Council of George W. Bush, was no longer in line to be the ambassador to South Korea because he could not support a limited strike on North Korea. That's led to speculation that President Trump may indeed be considering such an attack. It's a move many foreign policy experts fear would lead to a conflict that would in no way be limited because North Korea might opt to go nuclear. Which reminds me, it was only three weeks ago that citizens in Hawaii believed that we were already there. The U.S. Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. A missile may impact on land or sea within minutes. This is not a drill. Except that it was. Hawaii's residents demanded to know how the false alarm could have been sent and why it took officials more than 30 minutes to issue the all-clear. Earlier this week, the FCC completed its investigation and supplied the answer. The FCC says the panic started when an employee mistook a drill for a real warning about a missile threat and sent the warning. All of this, the rhetoric, the situation room plotting, the uncanny mishap, has us here thinking once again of doomsday, apocalypse, Armageddon, by nuclear folly or otherwise. And apparently... We're not the only ones. On January 25th, the Doomsday Clock, so named because it represents humankind's ebb and flow towards and away from apocalypse, ticked 30 seconds closer to our own proverbial midnight. Now, it isn't a Geiger counter or any kind of empirical measurement device. Since its 1947 introduction, it has merely been a vivid metaphor expressing the collective alarm of atomic scientists whose job it is to develop this stuff. With climate change and cyber warfare added into the mix of threats, they now judge civilization to be at 11.58 p.m., the closest to the end of humanity we have ever reached. The Bolton Atomic Scientist was created uh, by scientists who'd worked on the atomic bomb to convey the dangers of nuclear war to the public. 
Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist and the chair of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists Board of Sponsors. What the clock is, is a starting point, not an ending point. The clock is to raise interest and concern and then to encourage the public to discuss and potentially act. The Bulletin for the rest of the year provides in-depth articles, not opinion pieces, but articles providing information by experts on, say, the Iran nuclear weapons agreement or the possibility of counting weapons from North Korea so that people can go and get real information to try and create sound public policy based on empirical reality, to point out that we do live in a scary world and there are real issues, but more importantly, we can deal with those issues. There are solutions to those problems. We move the doomsday clock back. Whenever we introduce it, we talk about what can be done to move us further away from the brink. You've mentioned moving it back. It has, in its history, nudged backwards every now and then. What were the circumstances? Well, there were a variety of circumstances. It moved back the furthest at the end of the Cold War. We moved it back about a year after Obama was elected, based on the rhetoric that was occurring about the need to address nuclear weapons issues. Fatalism is a deadly adversary. For if we believe that the spread of nuclear weapons is inevitable, then in some way we are admitting to ourselves that the use of nuclear weapons is inevitable. But, of course, unfortunately, those weren't met by action, whether it was his problem or Congress's problem, and we we moved it forward again. But we move it back when there are nuclear arms agreements. I must say, it does feel great when it moves back. It's like the fall when you get that extra hour of sleep at the end of daylight (laughs) savings time. It's not this endless progression closer to zero. It, It doesn't have to be, but it will depend on the actions that people take and governments take. The Nuclear Posture Review, which just came out a few weeks ago, indicates that this administration wants to create more nuclear weapons, different types of nuclear weapons, to somehow make quote-unquote usable nuclear weapons. The Trump administration wants more flexibility to respond with nuclear weapons to an attack. The U.S. wants to develop a new low-yield tactical version of the Trident missile launched from submarines. Well, that is an incredibly dangerous thing because if anything has kept us safe, it's this notion of deterrence that there's a threshold and nuclear weapons should not be used. But if you have small nuclear weapons that somehow seem usable, we're on a slippery slope. The last adjustment a week ago was... 30 seconds. Is it a function of Trump, a water shortage in Cape Town? Is is it the Patriots making the Super Bowl again? What makes you <laughs> do that? Well, except for the last one, we spend a lot of time, the Bolton's uh, Science and Security Board, days or sometimes weeks educating ourselves. And it is an issue. We knew we were quite sober in this. So when we moved to 30 seconds, it would be the closest it's ever been to midnight since 1953 when the Soviet Union first exploded a thermonuclear bomb and and the United States did, and we had suddenly had devastating weapons of mass destruction. We moved it forward around the time when Trump was inaugurated because there had been incredibly dangerous statements made by candidate Trump about nuclear weapons. And so we said, look, actions speak louder than words, but words mean something when this person is now president. The dangerous rhetoric has escalated. Plus, it's been followed by policies that are counterproductive. The fact is the United States pulled out of the Paris Accords and has installed someone as the head of the EPA who basically is determined to destroy the environment. Now, local, regional, and state authorities, they are taking measures to try and stem climate change at some level. So there are positives and negatives, and we try and weigh them. There's a divergence of opinion initially, and what amazes me is that we come to a consensus every year. All right. You are obviously a scientist. Scientists bow at the altar of rationality, of empiricism, and yet you've got this sort of advertising exception for the doomsday clock. you got to get people's attention through metaphor and just raw emotion. Do you concede that any part of that is, if not hypocritical, at least pretty damn ironic? But we don't base it just on pure emotion. If we just put out the clock and didn't say anything, I think that would be more along the lines of what you're talking about. But the clock is just the beginning, and it comes along with a detailed statement which allows you and I to talk about these issues. I've had in-depth discussions on radio and television about issues that I would never talk about otherwise that really need to be talked about. All right, you started in 1947. The clock was sent seven minutes to midnight. After Uh 71 years... It has advanced to within two minutes of oblivion. Is Uh this not arguably evidence that the gimmick hasn't worked? (laughs) Well, look, 
if I thought announcing the doomsday clock would immediately cause the world to change dramatically, I'd be rather naive. There are many more countries that have nuclear weapons, but the clock has moved in both directions. And what's really important is maybe because of luck, maybe because of wisdom, the clock has never hit midnight. Whether the clock has played a role, and I think that the clock and the movement by scientists in 1970 or so to get the United States to sign and ratify the Non-Proliferation Treaty and end the testing of nuclear weapons made the world a safer place. Look, all you can do is try, and you don't know what the world might have been if you hadn't tried. But I think we should feel good that we're still here, and more importantly, that we can rationally begin to discuss what we can do to make sure we stay here. When you talk about midnight, have you ever given any thought to what one minute after midnight might look like? <laughs> um, well, yes, and in my in in ver- and per- personally, I have. I've thought about what the world would be like without humans. I remember being in Antarctica recently and feeling like a world without humans, and realizing that the world will go on, and maybe. In the long run, nature might be better off. But I, on the, on the other hand, think that the uh, human experiment is so fascinating and amazing. And the fact that you and I can have a conscious awareness of the world and, and not only can talk about it, but can change it, is so remarkable that we should probably work as hard as we can to keep the human experiment going as long as we can. Well, Lawrence, thank you very, very much. Okay, thank you. And I hope you'll be enthusiastic about seeing what the clock is next year. Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist and chair of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists Board of Sponsors. So, if the doomsday clock is an exercise in getting the public's attention to really grab their imagination, showing always beats telling. Take, for instance, the 1953 test blast that was nationally televised from the Nevada desert. The government had set up a mock neighborhood near Yucca Flat, dubbed Doomtown, where dummies arranged as American families waited for doom. To show the nation the effects of atomic blast on homes, home-type shelters, and automobiles. In 1981, the doomsday clock had been set to four minutes to midnight. In 1983, President Reagan was escalating tensions with the Soviet Union. They preached the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man, and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth. They are the focus of evil in the modern world. That fall, Soviet aircraft shot down a Korean passenger jet. Then, a system malfunction showed U.S. missiles were launched. A Soviet officer averted disaster by double-checking before retaliating. Then, in November, believing that NATO war exercises were obscuring a real attack, the Soviet Union readied its military for an actual conflict. Then, weeks later... The made-for-TV movie The Day After aired on televisions around the country. An estimated 100 million people, nearly half the nation, tuned in to ABC to watch what a nuclear attack might look like. What's going on? Those are Miniman missiles. Like a test, sort of. Like a warning? They're on their way to Russia. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. So do theirs, right? It was affecting television, and ABC knew it. After the movie, the network aired an all-star panel of scientists, pundits, and politicians all talking about disarmament and deterrence. Ted Koppel hosted. If you can, take a quick look out the window. It's all still there. Your neighborhood is still there, so is Kansas City and Lawrence and Chicago and Moscow and San Diego and Vladivostok. What we have all just seen is sort of a nuclear version of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. The day after managed to catalyze a national conversation about American nuclear policy. But that didn't make it a good movie. And more than that, it was not intended to be a very good movie. The director, Nicholas Meyer, was interviewed on the Outline World Dispatch podcast last year. I just thought, no, it can't be a good movie. It has to be like a public service announcement. If you have a nuclear war, this is more or less what it's going to be like. 
faced with a nation of families uncertain about how to explain nuclear war to their kids, Mr. Rogers aired a five-part series on dealing with conflict. There are other ways to solve a problem. There are other ways to solve a nasty problem. Other ways. Other ways. Back then, Marsha Gordon was in junior high. She well remembers the fear and the fervor. She's now a professor of film studies at North Carolina State University, and she recently wrote about the day after for the website The Conversation. There's basically a before and then the day after. And so you have normal Midwestern people getting married, people having babies, people going about their lives. Hello! Where have you two been? Come on. Sorry, Miss Dahlberg. <laughs> And then, uh, all of a sudden, this scenario unfurls. We just hit one of our ships in the Persian Gulf. What? What the Russians, who do you think? We hit them back, one of their ships, you know? And people are panicked as the alarm goes out that there's incoming nuclear missiles. Roger, copy. This is not an exercise. Roger, understand. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. at this time, ICBMs. And then we are deploying them as well. And so everyone located near these uh, missile silos is watching them come out of the ground. And to me, in some ways, it's the most haunting images in the film are seeing these missiles going up into the air and people looking at them. Danny! ABC decided not to run advertisements after the blast. It just played through. What we see in the aftermath is there's no electricity but plenty of radiation and a lot of expositional scenes where the full magnitude of all of this sets in. Here's a clip from a hospital. Now, what about fuel to boil water, heat food, sterilize surgical instruments? What about bringing in wood? You can't burn wood that's been contaminated. Just put radiation right back in the air. What about bottled gas? There's some butane, but no more than about three days' worth. All of the action is on the local level. It is the farmers, the doctors, the people on the ground have the sense and have the ability to navigate this crisis in a way that the government does not. Can you explain what you mean by scraping off the top layers of my topsoil? Uh, exactly that, Jim. You just take the top four or five inches of your topsoil. Yeah, and do what with it? We're talking 150, maybe 200 acres a man in here. That's right. Uh, being big is one thing. Being realistic is another. Suppose you find a hole where you can drop all this dead dirt. What kind of topsoil is that going to leave you for raising anything? Where'd you get all this information, John? All this good advice out of some government pamphlet? And there is even a presidential broadcast over the shortwave radio. There has been no surrender, no retreat from the principles of liberty and democracy for which the free world looks to us for leadership. The government, functioning under certain extraordinary emergency options, we are prepared to make every effort... And to drive the point home, we see people stumbling through the rubble as he's talking, and some who are huddled over the radio have this reaction. That's it? That's all he's going to say? Hey, maybe we're going to be okay. What do you want to hear? I want to know who started it, who fired first, who preempted. You're never going to know that. What difference does it make? He doesn't know how badly we were he hit. He sure would have told us if they would have fired first. He doesn't want anyone to think we lost the war. You believe that? After the broadcast, there was a panel hosted by Ted Koppel. It had the uh, great astronomer Carl Sagan and Ely Wiesel, known for his writings about the Holocaust and hunting Nazis, George Schultz from Reagan's defense team. It's a discussion of contemporary America's nuclear strategy and also of the Soviet Union. And some of the questions from the audience point to where we are today. What are we to do 20 to 25 years from now when the superpowers no longer have the decision-making power about whether nuclear war will or will not occur? What about the Khomeini or Gaddafi? Uh, having that capability. And actually, over and over again, Wiesel says things that are very powerful and very timely. I'm afraid of madness. I'm afraid that madness is possible in history. And uh, the only way, I believe, to prevent that madness would be to remember. If we remember that things are possible, then I believe memory can become a shield. We live in a world currently where I think that idea really resonates. 
And yet the New York Times ran a story before the broadcast quoting a therapist urging families not to watch the post-show panel discussion hosted by Ted Koppel. Quote, it's extremely important for people to talk about the day after themselves and not let television do the talking and feeling for them. If they do that, they'll lock feelings of despair and fatalism inside themselves. Well, I have read a number of articles that came out just before this airing in which psychologists express actual long-term concerns about uh, young people watching this program that ranged from bedwetting and nail-biting to insomnia. A lot of people did not think that people under the age of 12, for example, should maybe watch this at all. And there were viewing guides that were distributed to guide conversation. We have a link to it on our website. Here's a sample question. Of all the institutions which presently constitute American society, which ones would be best suited to handle a post-war society and its manifold problems? Yes, so ABC apparently produced around half a million of these study guides and distributed them to schools and churches and community centers. And, you know, on the one hand, clearly they were trying to promote viewership. It was also, I think, to forestall criticism that they were just putting this terrifying (laughs) movie out in the world and letting people fend for themselves with how to deal with it. The study guide does, though, ask some really good questions about how people thought about the likelihood of this happening, about its survivability, the political context and consequences, which was certainly on everyone's mind. It just, I don't think, had been thought of in such a big pop cultural way that didn't reach so many people. As you wrote in your piece, the movie was used as a rallying cry both for the anti-nuclear groups and the pro ones. It's interesting to see the way that Reagan's White House responded to this film by trying to turn it into a film that advocates for nuclear deterrence because we don't want this to happen. And by nuclear deterrence, you mean deterring nuclear war by having a lot of nukes. Absolutely. And so that was their position. There were protests immediately after this viewing. And, of course, there were many people who were anti-nukes and wanted to go into a period of incredible disarmament. Interestingly, one person who seems to have gotten that message was Ronald Reagan, Not long after the film, Reagan held a series of summits with Mikhail Gorbachev about both countries' nuclear arsenals. Well, if you listen to that viewpoint discussion after the airing of the day after, this is discussed, including by Secretary of State Schultz, that the goal was not just to proliferate, that the goal was to get to a point where both countries would agree to start dialing back their nuclear storehouses. And Carl Sagan talks about this idea that you imagine two people in a room. A room awash in gasoline. And there are two implacable enemies. One of them has 9,000 matches. The other has 7,000 matches. Each of them is concerned about who's ahead, who's stronger. Well, that's the kind of situation we are actually in. You know, we posted your piece on our On the Media Facebook page, and a listener, Wayne in Hawaii, wrote that he's in his 40s and he saw the film as a child and, quote, a few weeks ago when the false missile alert went off in Hawaii, I distinctly remember thinking, well, it finally happened. It wasn't panic. It wasn't fear. It was more resignation than anything else. I think because we were the last generation that grew up during the Cold War, that nuclear annihilation was always a possibility and it permeated the culture, especially with depictions like the day after. That anxiety was always there and it never left us. Wayne is absolutely right. I don't think that people who are in their 30s and younger have a sense of the fear. There's a big difference between hearing rhetoric like we've heard in the first few weeks of 2018 and imagining what this would look like. I think we might be due for another dose of this. So how would you remake it today? I would definitely think about a kind of global context that was not just focused 
on American soil, but on the many places in which this attack would likely transpire. And the question of the technological meltdown is incredibly relevant and maybe the most relevant in, in an odd way, especially if you wanted to resonate with young people. You mean their iPhones won't work anymore? Yes. If you've never read a map, if you've never figured out how to do anything without consulting technology, how are you going to navigate a world in which technology is no longer functional? And so who is going to have that wisdom? And it's going to be older people who know how to get a shortwave radio to work, know how to get from point A to point B by looking at a map, for example. You could also begin to imagine a scenario in which class gets turned on its head a little bit. I mean, who knows how to weld? Who knows how to hunt? I mean, is it someone in Silicon Valley who's made their millions off of technology? Or is it somebody who's been having to work in a kind of blue-collar job? Another thing I would think about is, you know, when I've kind of rolled this over in my mind, the fact that the day after takes place in such an immediate time post-blast, I think it would be very interesting to think a, a kind of longer game like the year after. Mm-hmm. And then seven years after? And then 75 years after? Yeah, right. I mean, what are the long-term consequences? I mean, the idea of a nuclear winter is not approached at all in the day after, but what if it was never warm enough to germinate a seed? How are you going to survive? Thank you very much. You are very welcome. Marsha Gordon is a professor of film studies at North Carolina State University. She recently wrote about the day after for the website, The Conversation. Coming up, the stories we tell ourselves after the disaster. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. I'm Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. The Day After imagines a world reeling from nuclear attack, but it's a very particular world, situated in the Cold War era of the early 80s. Masha Gordon said she'd like to see a piece that reflects on the long-term impact of apocalypse. Playwright Anne Washburn tackled one aspect of that in her 2012 play, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. It depicts a world devastated by a nuclear incident of some kind in which the survivors cope by retelling one episode of The Simpsons. You got a letter too, Bart. I'm going to kill you. I was really curious to see what would happen to a story over time under kind of extreme conditions. And the story that you chose to follow across the decades is an episode from The Simpsons called Cape Fear. 
It's the Simpsons version of the Scorsese remake of the Robert Mitchum original, which was itself <laughs> based on a novel. In the episode, Bart was involved in putting Sideshow Bob away to prison for his various incredible misdeeds. And Sideshow Bob is sending him death threats. If released, would you pose any threat to one Bart Simpson? Bart Simpson? The spirited little scamp who twice foiled my evil schemes and sent me to this dank, urine-soaked hellhole. And finally, the family, to sort of escape him, goes away on a houseboat in the middle of a river. Don't worry, Mrs. Simpson. We've helped hundreds of people in danger. We have places your family can hide in peace and security. Cape Fear, Terror Lake, New Horror Field, Screamville. Ooh, Ice Creamville. Uh, no, Screamville. And, of course, Sideshow Bob shows up again, and there's a kind of a duel to the death which gets very involved with Gilbert and Sullivan. Well, Bart, any last requests? You have such a beautiful voice. Guilty as charged. I was wondering if you could sing the entire score of the HMS Pinafore. Very well, Bart. I shall send you to heaven before I send you to hell. And there's a climactic scene on the river with the performance of HMS Pinafore. What never, no never, what never, hardly ever, he's hardly ever sick. And finally, Bart is saved when the ship runs aground next to a, a brothel. And a whole bunch of police, they come streaming out and, <laughs> and eventually decide to arrest him. <laughs> so now let's turn to your work. Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, Act 1, Scene 1. We open on a group of people around a campfire, and they're really trying very hard to remember this episode of The Simpsons. Gotcha, Bob. Take Bart out of the hole and onto the deck and the crocodile. And I think it seems at first very much like an activity which is very familiar to us. All of us at one point or another been in a group of people trying to put together a TV episode and sort of enjoying <laughs> it and laughing at it and relaxing with it. Homer's like, hey, everybody, want to drive through that tacky patch? And they're like, and it's only as the play kind of moves forward and we hear a sort of strange noise in the shrubbery and everyone stops what they're doing, pulls out guns, that we realize the stakes are different. And the person who emerges from the woods is a guy named Gibson who describes his path to this campsite. And so we're able to piece together that essentially the world is in flames. You kind of infer that this is probably a string of terrible nuclear incidents. All we know is that now people, they're basically in survival mode. Mm -hmm. How does Act One end? After much sort of struggle to integrate Gibson into the group, they start to retell the Simpsons episode. And there are numerous Gilbert and Sullivan quotations in that episode of The Simpsons. And Gibson, as it turns out, was a member of his local Gilbert and Sullivan Society. <laughs> so he has that information. Say words, never, never, never get sick, get sick. I'm never, never sick, get sick. What never, no never, what never, well, hardly ever. He's hardly ever sick, get sick. There's a little parenthetical in the stage directions. Please note that these are people who in normal life would never be interested in the introduction of more Gilbert and Sullivan into their immediate social environment. But in the context, they're thrilled. So he joins in, he's able to contribute to the group, and they all kind of join in and merrily sing as the, the lights sort of sweetly go out on this scene at the end of Act One. And then Act Two begins. It's seven years later. The Simpsons episode is still being told, but it's no longer a, a campfire tale. So that same group of people, plus a new member, have become... They've become a roving Simpsons troupe, and they will retell and recreate as best they can episodes from The Simpsons, one of which is Cape Fear. At last, Bart Simpson, at last, while you and your family cozy yourselves away in this houseboat. We sort of discover they're one of a number of groups which are, are doing similar things. There are other Simpsons groups. They also make reference to the medical drama group. I think there's an ER or house. <laughs> The landscape is sort of littered with these troops who are handling TV shows of the past. There is reference made to the Shakespeare's. There's a group doing Shakespeare, <laughs> but it seems pretty clear that that's the most low-rent group you could fall into, <laughs> and only if you are really diseased and desperate. But the thing is, they are treating these works 
as unchangeable relics of the past. It's seven years after the apocalyptic event wherein our civilization was destroyed. And seven years is not a long period of time. And it really seemed to me that seven years after the apocalypse, people are going to want what's certain, what's reassuring, what reminds them very solidly of of the old time. So the value for entertainment at that time is not going to be in creative expression or commentary on the moment. The value is going to be on the troupe which can pull together the most exacting replica of a cartoon possible. No motivation, no consequence. That's the point of a cartoon. Where else do we get to experience that? Does that mean that these roving troops never really comment on their lives as they live it? I think they don't comment at all during the episodes, but the episode does have commercial breaks. And I feel like the commercials are where you would have latitude. There are two commercials that we see in the second act. And one of them is a woman comes home from a long, tedious day at the office. You know, she takes off her earrings. She checks her purse. She removes her shoes. She makes sort of uh, exasperated noises. Her husband is sympathetic. She's like, oh, you should take a bath. She's like, I'll take a bath. Can I get you a Chablis? Yes, I'd love a Chablis. (laughs) (laughs) Better. A little. (laughs) And as she's preparing the bath... She's talking about someone at work who's stealing lunch bags out of the office refrigerator, which is all sort of careless and merry, but there is no way in that kind of future that anyone would appreciate someone going up on stage and saying, oh my God, we can be looted or raped or robbed at any moment, and there's very little to prevent anyone from doing it. That's not going to be a welcome commentary, but there is kind of nostalgia, A, for a time when somebody snitching lunches out of the office refrigerator was the worst thing that might happen to you in a day. But also there is this sense, I think, in which this weird roving figure who steals mysteriously and no one can seem to control is the very lighthearted shadow of of something which would be of a concern at the time. Menace looming behind you. You just don't see it except maybe out of the corner of your eye. (laughs) Yes, in this case embodied in the jerk who's stealing lunches out of the refrigerator with seemingly no moral compass whatsoever. Like Sideshow Bob. Like Sideshow Bob. I mean, that story, that original story, that Cape Fear story is so wonderful because the Robert Mitchum character who becomes the De Niro character who becomes Sideshow Bob is just pitiless and he's remorseless. So now to your third act. It is Mm. 75 years later. And the acting out of the Simpson episodes especially this one, Cape Fear, seems to have become a massive production, a cultural mm-hmm. touchstone like Faust, maybe. I'm here to report an incident at the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant. ceases cross. Because God is always handy. Fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. The birds are calling for the dawn. On the 75 years later, it's become a kind of crazy, gaudy melodrama, which is really about violence and it's about contamination. And Sideshow Bob has morphed into Mr. Burns, who in the series is the nuclear power plant owner. But he's become that same kind of hideous, inexorable threat, completely poisonous, completely toxic. Except that Sideshow Bob is, you know, vain and vanquished. And it seems like Mr. Burns is invincible. This is it, Burns. You're never coming back. What? Never? No, never. What? Never? Kill me now, Bart Simpson. Kill me all you like, but don't be surprised when you and I meet again. I'm never leaving. I don't go away. You can't stop him. I mean, in the first act... No one knows what's going on, particularly. The characters are very much dealing with rumor. You know, like, how far does contamination go? Does the wind spread? You know, where do you need to be to be safe? And no one knows. No one knows we're safe, which people both speak about in short bursts and mostly try not to speak about and try not to think about, because why would you? It would be crazy-making. And in the second act, there's a kind of a speech where one of the characters talks about the contamination that no one has any idea of, you know, from chemical plants. You know, a tank dissolves or it explodes and it's by a river or it's on an aquifer. So second act is a little bit haunted by this sense of 
contamination which is not understood and not possible to do anything about. And so in the third act, you do see this character who really sort of takes that on. Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns, who is just the force which cannot be stopped, cannot be reckoned with, cannot be vanquished. There is a sort of a happy ending, but it doesn't come about because Bart is smart or is brave. The hand of God does not intervene. He only succeeds because he manages to just cussedly hang on long enough for events to change in his favor. But there's no sense in the third act that virtue is rewarded. If you survived, it's because you somehow held on. and It's a function of luck. It's a function of luck. Why The Simpsons? It was not a Simpsons-specific idea originally. I had sort of thought Seinfeld or Friends or Cheers or any program which was cheerful, which a lot of people had known. And I don't remember how I arrived at The Simpsons. It turns out to work really well, partly, I think, because it's been around for so long. Mm -hmm. And also, because it's a cartoon, it has so many characters, and it's such a huge, wide world. I think also that a lot of sort of the big popular comedies are about friend groups and intentionally formed communities. And The Simpsons is very much about the family you're stuck with and the community you're stuck Mm -hmm. with and how you make the best of it, which I think would be more resonant in a post-apocalyptic world. I mean, people would be longing for the families that were gone. They would be struggling with issues of how you create a community which isn't completely dysfunctional. It's funny, when we spoke to Marsha Gordon about the day after, even though it had a huge impact, there hasn't been a big effort to show it again. And yet your play has been produced year after year after year since it debuted. Does it feel different now? Does it resonate differently? Only in the sense that I think the question of nuclear annihilation just feels a little more present in our culture right Mm -hmm. now. It isn't about a nuclear war and the result. It is about nuclear. I mean, Burns is not a PSA, almost to my regret. I have many bossy opinions on the topic of what it is for humans to handle a technology they actually are demonstrably unable to control. Nuclear power is completely safe as long as there is no human failure of any kind, no infrastructure failure of any kind. It's completely safe as long as it is controlled by a civilization which progresses continuously with, you know, smooth segues from one civilization to the next for a period of about 10,000 years. And that's something which has never happened in the history of human beings. There are disruptions and there are wars. And under those conditions, nuclear power with its intense dependence for safety on an incredibly vulnerable electrical grid is not completely safe. (laughs) So that was a source of tension which Mm -hmm. drove the making of the play. There is something exciting about the breakdown of systems, Mm. though, isn't there? Something liberating about that? I think it's immensely soothing to think about the apocalypse, because (laughs) it's the point where there's no use being anxious about the apocalypse. You you can move (laughs) on to new, more concrete problems. (laughs) The suspense is over. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Anne Washburn is a playwright. The play we've discussed is Mr. Burns, a post-electric that's it for this week's show on the media is produced by alana casanova burgess jesse brenneman michael lowinger and leah fetter we had more help from john hanrahan isaac napel and philip yiannopoulos Special thanks this week to Andy Lancet, head of the WNYC Archives, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.